Welcome to The Bounce Podcast. I'm Bob Lapine. I'm the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm also on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. GCC is a church planting, church strengthening alliance of churches. Uh, we are planting churches not only here in the United States, but around the world. And we are strengthening the leaders, the pastors who are planting those churches. You can find out more about the Great Commission Collective when you go to our website, which is gccollective.org. And I hope you'll check things out. I hope you'll find out more about the Great Commission Collective and the work that we're doing. It may be that your church would want to align with the work that we're doing and become a part of the collective. Again, find out more at gccollective.org. Today's edition of The Bounce, we're going to be talking to Dr. Danny Hinton. Danny gives leadership to a ministry called Downline in Little Rock, Arkansas. Downline is actually in a number of cities here in the Midwest. It started in Memphis. It's in Little Rock, Conway, Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, other locations where it's expanding out. Downline is a discipleship ministry for adults. It's kind of that mid-tier between the regular adult church discipleship and seminary education. It's for those who want to go deep and go there intentionally. You can find out more about Downline. There's a link to that ministry in our show notes. But I had the opportunity to talk with Danny Hinton, along with a small group of men recently, about his PhD thesis when he got his doctorate from uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville. Danny was curious about those kids who went through youth group, graduated from high school, and then became disciple makers. He was looking at the opposite side of the equation, not kids who were falling away from the faith, but kids who were who were excelling still more. In fact, as we begin this conversation, I'll let Danny explain what was at the heart of his doctoral study. The idea is a nine month discipleship training course shared by the city. Uh, it's kind of an answer to um, the gap between church level classes and training and seminary. There's not a lot in between. So Downline exists to kind of do a deeper seminary type dive, but do it in a very practical way for folks who maybe don't plan to be pastors. And Downline is here, Memphis, Northwest Arkansas. Conway. Conway. Spanish and virtual. Okay. Um, and you've got 50 students here? Here's 60 students from about 20 churches. Okay. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great program, and you should go through it or tell people to go through it. You've got all age groups. Yeah, most of our, all of our folks are, you know, 20 to 80 plus. 80 plus. Yep. yep. Wow. So uh, if you're interested in Downline, you can talk to him more about it. It starts in September. It goes through May. Anybody from the church who wants to go through downline, we pay for half your way to go through downline. Fifteen hundred a year, right? Mm -hmm. We'll pay seven fifty for anybody who wants to go through. So if it's not you, if there's somebody else you know that should go through it, talk it up. I'm a big fan of downline. We were having lunch several months ago, and I asked you about your doctoral thesis, mm -hmm. and explain your doctoral thesis. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, some of you have seen the data uh, over the last 20 years, the big stat, the kind of the scare stat that everybody's heard is along the way is 75% of church kids are leaving the faith by the end of their freshman year of college, right? So this was coming out, I'd say 25 or 30 years ago, we first started to kind of hear this push. I was in youth ministry uh, starting about 
20 years ago or so. So all of the data had already been written about kids who grow up in church, but don't develop a lasting faith that kind of endures on into young adulthood. So that was kind of clear. Then practically speaking in youth ministry, I was seeing it. So 75% of my kids, you want you in year one of one or two of college, they've kind of dropped off. They're not involved in church. They're not showing signs of growth in their faith. And what I found was generally speaking, if they were standing firm, it was because either a, this was kind of a, 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 a slight to me as a youth pastor, but, uh, they either a probably would have been standing firm, whether or not they were with the youth group, you know, so like they had an awesome family and they were probably going to grow. We were just kind of supplementary or I personally discipled them. Well, it was one of those two. And then I, wow, there's hundreds of kids that don't fit in that category that are kind of with us that we're doing ministry with. And so one of the big things that kind of came out of that whole thing is we had to start defining the goal. So what is the goal for your youth pastor? You work with next generation ministry from the time they start with you to the time the end, what's the end game and start defining that, which not a lot of, of, of people were doing that at that time. So they're like, we got them in the door. That was the win. And so we're starting to ask, no, 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 what's the end game of this? So as I started defining that, we started defining they are walking with Christ, authentic relationship with Christ, no theology. Uh, they're not going to be susceptible to the, the sort of the schemes of the philosophical movements of college and all this sort of thing. And then we started adding this fifth one, disciple maker. Like, wow, that, that's kind of a totally different aim. I mean, like we, because the first one's all kind of aim and knowledge. You got to know enough and, and maybe even do enough. But this, this disciple making is like, you're a, a, you have to be this certain type of person that is a multiplier, a, a leader in your church, one that shares the gospel, you know, this sort of thing. So I wanted to contribute to the scholarly conversation, which is hard to do because there's, everyone's written everything there is. And so I thought I would go in and I would study and go to the next question of the current research. Current research is starting to say, why are kids leaving? So there's only 25% that are still here. They start surveying them. How are you still here? You know, what was your family like? What was your youth group like? Because you're the anomaly. You did it. You survived it. You're here. You know, that sort of thing. And I wanted to ask the question, since when was the goal for them to just still be here? Where are the ones who didn't just survive it, but they're disciple makers? And how we would indicate that would be they're, they're sharing the gospel with folks and they're discipling younger believers. That's the Great Commission. So that's what I set off to do. Uh, to, and when you are new to stats and social science, um, like I was, I was faced with a daunting task. And that is you have to find a subject pool to ask. Because I wanted to find where are the 18 to 29-year-old disciple makers in America. Think about that. Very few 18 to 29s are even here. I want to find the ones who share their faith and disciple people. Couldn't find them. And that was the beginning of the research. So how did you begin to look for them? What, what, where do you go? You don't, you go on Google and say, <laughs> if you're discipling people, email me. What do yeah. you do? So in order to keep it scientifically accurate and usable as a nationwide study, I had to find, uh, unfortunately, there are only a handful of churches who would do something so publicly that I could find them, like a discipleship academy, a, 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 an institute, an equipping group or something like that. Um, 
So the handful of churches that I found that were doing something intentional to raise up disciple makers, I reached out to them. Can I survey your people? And then mostly it was parachurch ministries and college ministries where they, they're, that's their primary intention. And so I ended up with about 12 different organizations, some church, some parachurch. And here was the unique thing. I, I, I admit this is maybe sound boring to you guys, but this is the unique thing. I couldn't study them after they had gotten the training from the place because it would skew it. So in other words, they've gotten the training from this church program or Young Life or K-Life or, um, you know, Crew has one. Yeah, student mobilization. And so if, if you, you go, you went through this program, if I asked them, so what's been so influential in you and how are you a disciple maker at age 23? Well, they're going to say, I went through the program, yeah. You know, or something. It's like, ah, oh, that's not what I was after. Because I was after how in the home, in those zero to 18, how do we create a disciple maker? So I needed to find someone who was raising their hand as interested in disciple making and then capture them before they took the, the, the plunge into the program. That was what was difficult. So there was a time constraint on my research and I ended up with about some like 430. Wow. Uh, that was my sample size from those like, you know, 12 to 15 organizations. And so these are, these are front end going into it. I'm, I'm just curious, did you follow up? Have you followed up with those folks to see if after they went through the program, they stuck with it and are still doing things? So that was the, that was at the end of your PhD research, they asked you to do, you know, ideas for future study. So that my, one of my ideas for future study was here's the sample group. Right. I mean, I have their contact information. So if anybody wanted to come behind me and do a, did this program influence, then they, they could do that. No one has contacted no one's me. Done that. I, or nor has anyone probably read my dissertation yeah <laughs> so you did you go into this with presuppositions of what you would find and were your presuppositions confirmed or yeah great question um i, I did uh i i sort of arrogantly thought i had i had the answer and i was just going to prove it in the data which is not a good research tactic anyway you're supposed to come in and let the let the data speak and so i remember of course the idea would be youth ministry is not affecting kids. That was what I think, because I was a youth pastor, is not affecting kids like we think and then becoming disciple makers. But you know what is? This was my, my presupposition, the home. You know, parents are the primary disciplers. And so we're gonna see this like in-home discipleship has way more weight than youth ministry. That was my thought. So massive, almost wrecked my study was my first round of data came back. And it was, almost zero correlation between in-home family discipleship practices and becoming a disciple maker. Seriously. And, and I'll explain, <laughs> zero correlation between your youth ministry involvement and becoming a disciple maker. Now this is, as a researcher, it's kind of like your worst nightmare because this is where your professor usually says, start over. <laughs> and you're like years in, you know, to this thing. And my professor, uh, advisor was Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, he's written a lot in the field and uh, I remember sitting with him. He goes, no, this doesn't wreck the study. This is the study. And he starts kind of unpacking how, how cool this is to see this. So he starts asking the question, how are we defining family discipleship? In other words, the ones that, that scored high and had a great home life, let's start digging into that and let's just call it what it is in our study there was no correlation between that and becoming a disciple maker. Now, let me give a disclaimer. Don't forget 
there is a correlation between that and them staying involved in the faith. Okay. So that's an important distinction. There's a, a, actually a massive correlation between parents discipling in the home and their likelihood to stay in the faith. But for whatever reason, those practices of sharing the gospel and discipling weren't, weren't correlating. So here's what we found out. Mostly how we define in-home family discipleship is informational investment. So how would you score it? When I was giving the, a 22-year-old, I'd give him a survey. And I'd say, what did your parents do to disciple you? Well, I was using a survey that's already been developed, that's you know scientifically validated, and they would say it would say, uh, how often would your parents pray with you outside of meal times? Okay, uh, how often would you have a family devotion? How often did your family attend church? Uh, how often would uh, would dad uh, or would you guys memorize scripture? Uh, would dad give a devotion or dad give a message of some some sort? Right, all the typical stuff you would think. And so what I had to recognize at that point was those in-home family discipleship practices, which is how we defined it to that point. Really the whole, the whole conversation, that's how we defined it. If we were talking about it in conferences and things like that, that's what we would say is family discipleship. So I ended up probably the, the best move I made was at that point, I added a qualitative section of the research. And a qualitative section is where you aren't just looking at numbers and correlations you're talking to kids that's right so i had their contact information so i thought okay well now i can do follow-ups um so if i haven't lost you already in, in the, the boredom of this <laughs> i really just appreciate the opportunity to talk about this research i I'm, i love the subject and i think it's vital um so um if i haven't bored you already the idea what we had to do next was really unique so i was trying to then find out of the kids who grew up in a great home, right? So they had scored that they were like family discipleship, family. We pray, yes. we do devotions. Yep. I had to find those kids, but I had to isolate that variable because I really wanted to ask that kid. So I actually was looking for kids who had a great in-home experience, but weren't a leader in their youth group. So I had to look at the data and sort it out. And so as if you were really low in youth group involvement, but really high in home family discipleship. And then I asked them, Oh, and here's the other course, the ones that are scoring high in disciple making. Mm. So here you are, you're a disciple maker. I mean, you talk about rare. You're an 18 to 29 disciple maker. <laughs> you share your faith and you disciple younger believers. And I'm just fascinated by this. How did you get here? Right. That's what I want to know, right? And so you had a great home. You weren't involved in youth group. So how in the world did you get here? And I asked them, who was most influential in you becoming a disciple maker? And what did they do that was most influential in your preparation as a disciple maker? And there were tons of things you can imagine. It's open-ended. So they said, number one was a parent, by far, most listed person. So here, here's an 18 to 29-year-old. How did you get here? Who was most influential on you? My mom, my dad. They would mention one. And then... And does that mean influential in terms of mom and dad having an intentional strategy as opposed to just mom and dad living out their faith in front of me and we went to church and it, we, i knew it was important but mom and dad were intentionally saying i've got to disciple a son or a daughter is that what we're looking at so that was the second question right so it's it, it, i think it's fascinating one just to ask somebody who's 24 who is most influential and in you being who you are right now because right. you're crazy unique i wouldn't be surprised if they said campus minister 
or something. Yeah, they just, somebody discipled me, you know, or a spiritual father or something like that. No, mom, dad, mom or dad. Very consistent. Next question is, what did they do that most has been most influential on you making disciples? So they got to think back as a 24-year-old. I don't know. I've never thought about this before. Um, what shaped me the most about this? Because I just said that my dad shaped me the most. And then I started like clumping those responses together. And number one was something along the lines of, we did mission together. Mm. So the stories that they were telling, there, there was a lot of, they lived it out in front of us. We, uh, they made us go to church. Interestingly, that was one like, so why are you a disciple maker? My parents had a big influence. They made us go to church. We should take note of that. Yeah. That's a big part of it. When they think, and then it was, I saw my parents doing it. Um, and that was such a moving part of the research for me. Cause now I got to hear the stories. Um, I remember two, two stories stand out. One was, uh, a girl who was 24 was looking back and she said, when I was 16, my mom cornered me and she said, you oh, you're so welcoming. You always have people over and your friends over and like, you're just kind of like a magnet, but you never have your non-believer friends over. And she's pointing back at 24 to when she's 16. And I'm asking, why are you a disciple maker? She said, mom challenged me to engage my lost, my lost friends. How amazing is that? So, the, so then you go, so what was that mom doing that was different? Cause there's no correlation between the, the family discipleship that there is in them staying in the faith, but there's not in them making disciples. So this mom was extraordinary. What was she doing? She had targeted it. This is part of the discipleship is you got to reach out. You got to know how to share your faith. And then the second one was a, a young guy who said, Again, you're just asking them in a few short sentences, what did they do? He said, I'll never forget. My dad would always have a, a huge pack of waters in the back of his truck so that anybody we came across who needed help and we could talk to, we'd have a way to like start, spark up a conversation with hmm. So again, these mid twenties, like what was most influential and then remembering those stories. So as you can imagine, that starts to really start to shape the conclusions of the research, which is like, I got, I started to see this. We're not defining family discipleship comprehensively enough. We're missing that link. Full family discipleship is the information. It's the catechism. It's the scripture memory. It's the warmth. It's the relationship. And it's outward focused. And, and it's, you said we're doing it together. So it's kids and parents on mission, not just individually, but in some kind of a coordinated collaborative way. Yeah. And, and then interestingly, so most of the stories were that we did it together. Um, they, there, there were some stories about mom made me go on a mission trip, you know, same thing. So mom's most influential. Well, how so she made me go on the mission trip. So they didn't point to the mission trip. It was mom <laughs> made me go on the right. mission trip. Right. Uh, now on the flip side of this for youth ministry, this had major implications too, because I did the same thing on the flip side, terrible home life. If you had a terrible home life, you were a leader in your youth group, and now you're making disciples. I wanted to find out. Yeah, well, your youth group right. must be a little different, you know, than, than the average. And sure enough, who was most influential on you? And number one by far was a youth leader. Some said youth pastor, some said adult leader. So they're pointing to someone in their, their church. So all the folks at that point who were kind of getting down on youth ministry, it's not working, it's not producing anything. There was like this glimmer of hope right there. Wait. There's a certain aspect of youth ministry right there that's relational that they're pointing back to and going, that was the most influential. So I think it kind of, for me, it kind of was like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then 
what did they do that was most influential in you becoming a disciple maker? And it was, they took me on mission with them. Hmm. Or something like, they told me from the beginning, the youth group wasn't about me. It was just about inviting friends. It was about going out. It was, so just, that was the expectation. There was like evangelism training going on in the youth ministry, that sort of thing. So they, they kind of mirror each other. What was missing was the outward focus. And for me who had been in it for, for so long in youth ministry, it just made all the sense in the world. We have done all the input and expected nothing of them to turn around and show, show us that, you know, we would have uh, 30 kids graduate from the big, uh, massive youth ministry. And I would sit down on senior Sunday and I go, we just launched these kids as missionaries. We always say this, and you're missionaries out to your college campus. And I would just be overcome with guilt because I would think to myself, this kid has never proven that they actually can say the gospel out loud, let alone share it with someone or do it effectively. And then I felt this and I've had them for seven years Mm. or something like shame on me, you know, like what, what, we just missed it. Input, 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 and never turn it around. And they're doing they're doing calculus in school. They're solving problems. They're doing mock debates and political debates and things like that. And at church, just pizza and dodgeball. You know, that was, that was the thing of youth group at the time. It was just so, so weak, you know. So w- when you're watching a kid who's a junior in high school and they seem sincere, passionate, they go to their small group, they're, they're answering questions, they're memorizing scripture, I, I hear you saying, don't be surprised if that kid is a sophomore in college has wandered. Yeah, I think I think the the idea would be if you were to start with, you know, uh, we got a kid who's in our, our our kids ministry at six at six years old. There's certain objectives that we're trying to hit. And now they're 14 and they are memorizing scripture and they, they know theology. They, I think the question I would want to ask is, how are we measuring that? So if it's merely like exams or something, you know, there's something to be said for that. They're marking off theology. They, they, they clearly can articulate some things, but are they able, how would we measure putting into practice an authentic faith? And we should have them doing that amongst us at 16, 17, 18, in my opinion. I mean, several of my mentors have suggested that. Let's just back up that end date and say, let's just say 16 is the launch point. Mm. And at 16, 17, 18, let's treat them as an adult in the church. Now there's some things that we probably, right. they need to wait on a little right. bit. But so what do we expect of a 25 year old young man? Well, he should be giving, he should be serving in the church. He should be using his spiritual gifts for the edification of others around him. Uh, he should be seeking lost people and, and his, is his sphere to share the gospel with. And so we expect that of you too, 16 year old, 17 year old. And, and now under our tutelage for a couple of years, we get to do that together and fail together and grow together. So let, let me personalize this, because you grew up in a home where mom and dad divorced when you were 12. Mm-hmm. Were you getting spiritual input at home? You weren't getting family devotions, and dad wasn't leading spiritual times, was he? No. Uh, I, I had a, just an interesting interesting story of my childhood was um, I don't think either of my parents were interested in developing us spiritually early, early on. And my dad had kind of a radical coming to Christ um, early, maybe I don't know, three, four, five years old, maybe up through promise keepers. And he began to really, man, we got to disciple our kids. Well, 
you know, mom probably wasn't all, as on board with that. And so it became this kind of, you know, tension. That That's probably what I remember most of my childhood is dad, you know, limiting TV time and trying to be this sort of strict conservative dad and mom sort of no rules. And that's, you know, what we grew up in. When I came to Christ, I was discipled by a guy named Kenan Vaughn. And so I attribute that, and so many of us can. And how old were you at this time? I was 16. So you're in high school, you come to faith. How did you even meet Kenan? Where did, were you, you were in church? Yeah, so I uh, I got duped into coming to a Christian camp, right? Like many of us did. Like, you know, they show the pictures of the awesome water slides and everything, and then you show up and you're like, oh man, this is, this is just straight Jesus camp right here. <laughs> and w- when I heard the gospel at about 15, it made all the sense in the world to me because I had been wandering for so long. Emptiness. I, I do whatever I want and it's still empty. Oh, there it is. It's because of sin. It's because of my separation from God. So I was pretty much all in except for this is going to cost me at school. If, if people find out, you know, I've, I've become a believer, this is going to cost me. So I remember I accepted Christ at that camp and I came back home from that camp and just in God's sovereignty, I ended up kind of getting roped into this church outreach event where Kenan was the new youth pastor in town in okay. Kansas City. And what was the event? Uh, it was called the Outhouse. I don't remember exactly what what the uh, what <laughs> typical youth youth group. Right, exactly the Outhouse. <laughs> but it was a three on three basketball tournament, and um, I remember like bringing a bunch of my non believer buddies like to this thing, and uh, we were just going to whoop the church kids. That was our <laughs> that was our main goal, and. Um, we got kind of ushered in, you know, before the championship, you can't leave. Everybody's got to come in. And that's where I met Kenan. And he saw me at this tournament sort of acting, acting a fool. You know, I, I, I do believe I had an authentic conversion just a few months earlier, but there was no rooting. Right. There was no, I was returning to my old ways, so to speak. And, um, he's, he, as he tells the story later, he was watching and, and just Holy Spirit said, led, you know, sort of prompted him, uh, just the thought. If that kid could catch it, it could live for Christ, man, maybe he could have an influence. And so he just started discipling me. And so then, it, then that, that was the good match. I knew the gospel. Now I could see it lived out in front of me. So he, he was like a spiritual father during that time. And from the time you were 16 till you were 18, what did his discipleship in your life look like? It was like just older brother. Uh, come alongside. We did everything together. I mean, he was, he was single, uh, you know, in his early twenties. So he had time to give, you know, so we played sports together. He coached our, our baseball teams and stuff in the off seasons. Um, then I started, believe it or not, this sounds kind of silly, but he would lead a high school Bible study. I would take notes next to him and then I would teach the junior high Bible study. Wow. And, and it was his, it was his requirement of me and if we're going to spend all this time together, and uh, at, at the time, our, our thing we were bonding over was Tecmo Super Bowl. You guys remember that Nintendo game? Um, <laughs> it's an old school Nintendo game. Uh, if we're going to spend all this time together and have all this fun together and play ball together and stuff like that, I just want to make sure you're always right here next to me during high school Bible study because I need you to lead the, the junior high one. So that, that was my buy-in. Wow. And so you were, you, you were early on, and this is part of what downlines philosophy and strategy is it's not just pour the information out but pour not just pour the information in but put it in with the intention that you have to be able to transfer it to somebody else yeah that's right and yeah that that's for sure how i started to i guess taste and feel r- real what we call life on life discipleship it's it wasn't just a information but it, it was a 
life together, seeing it lived out, and then the expectation of reproduction. What did your parents think about what was going on with you? Uh, thrilled, okay. like turning my life around, Good. <laughs> uh, not being as much of a hoodlum. And when you went to college, mm -hmm. um, were you unplugged from Kenan at that point? I, you know, he just invested so much in me at that time. He, his uh, mom was dealing with some health issues. He was from Memphis, so he had moved back to Memphis. And um, both my eventual wife and I ended up at Mizzou, and um, I got a job at a church. So I was in youth ministry at 18. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, so a youth pastor can only do that with about, what, one kid, two kids? Yep. <laughs> so... I mean, when we think about a strategy for making every kid in the youth group a long-term disciple maker, you you do rely heavily on the moms and dads who some of them aren't bought in. Mm -hmm. And then the youth pastor is going, I can only handle a handful. What's, what's your recommendation there? Yeah, so one of the things in that early research I was telling you about, not my research, the early research showed that two primary top influencers of a child's faith, their faith development, number one is their parent, and number two is, this is key, significant adult relationship outside the home. And so that's where I think we really want to look at the current youth ministry model. And there's a lot that we've done over these years that everybody's rethinking now, and rightfully so. But one of the things we shouldn't rethink is connecting them to others in the church that are outside the home. And they're, they're reinforcing. And so, yes, if I were still in youth ministry, I, I would take the tactic of I would disciple about you know, six, eight, 10 um, disciple-making parents or mentors or college students who really got that vision, and then they would be discipling their discipleship groups of six, eight, 10, um, and trying to get all the kids in discipleship relationships that way. Kids need somebody other than mom and dad to say, this is real and legit, and here's how you do it, right? For, oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. And. So if, if you're working with a, and we're, we're looking with a, a handful of guys right here, you're saying these guys who may not be in the season, their kids are gone or they don't have kids yet, but you're saying they could connect themselves to a kid in the youth group and have a discipling relationship with that kid. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And that, that's what, if you read, if you were to read the 20 books. Uh, that the studies of, of folks that have gone through the, how are these kids staying connected? They just keep pointing back to it. it it's the people you would least suspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is like a 22 year old saying that they were longing to come back to church because they connected with a, a 70 year old uh, Sunday school teacher wow. who wasn't, wasn't cool, wasn't hip, was just kind of a verse by verse, maybe kind of a, most people would say they were dry, but it was a connection there. Um, there's a, there's little stories through all this research of just walking through your church as a teenager and somebody else who's not in your family, just saying, how was the speech tournament? Mm. And that's it. There's, uh, there's uh, something in a child's heart that says this, my faith is not just insular in my family. Yeah. This is a community. And so these are, and this is, this is biblical, right? This is spiritual aunts and uncles is what it is. And, and that's why we would count some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church as more influential in our kids' lives than our flesh and blood brothers and sisters, because that's what this is supposed to be. And I think most of us as adults look and go, kids could care less about my input, involvement, anything I would say to them. 
they, they don't want to hear from me. I'm old and <laughs> a fuddy-duddy, right? So we, we disconnect and unplug. But I remember in the years that I worked with Dennis Rainey at Family Life, he would tell me, he said, I was at the gas station the other day. I saw this high school kid who used to be in my sixth grade Sunday school class. And he's there filling up his gas. He said, I, I've heard some things about this kid that this kid is starting to get a little wild. But I just looked at him and I said, you know what? I think God's got big plans for you. I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of deposits, you have no idea how God's going to use something like that to you. You know, it, uh, that's, I have a story just like that. There's this group of kids at the church I'd worked with for several years in a row, and we were really pushing them. I mean, with this model in mind, hey, we got to raise the bar. We know you guys can do more. So we were trying to get the fifth graders to answer one apologetics question. By the time they go into youth group, you should all be able to stand up and answer why you trust the Bible. Just give a couple, a couple just key defenses of the scriptures. And that's hard. Fifth graders, fifth grade boys, just imagine that. It was wild. And so most of the time I was disciplinarian and I felt like I was frustrated and I was frustrating them, yeah. not getting much done. And but I just, I kept grinding and, you know, I thought somebody else has got to do this. I'm, I'm impatient. I'm mean. You know, let's find somebody who's really nice who can do this and make it fun. And, and one of the kids who gave me the most trouble all year at the very end uh, came up and just gave me this huge side hug, just kind of jarred me, you know, into my ribs, gave me a huge hug. And he goes, Mr. Danny, you're like my church dad. And I'll never forget that. Like that was, I felt like all I did was just get onto him the whole time and just, but it's like, he may not remember the apologetics question, but I was there for him. Speaking of apologetics, something you have a passion for, you think it's an essential part of training junior high and high school kids? That's a good question. Um, the short answer is yes, but I'll, I'll clarify um, because I think sometimes people jump to apologetics too soon. Uh, but here's what I see apologetics as. I think kids need a much more robust systematic theology and biblical understanding, biblical theology than we're giving them right now in general. So this is the catechism stuff. I mean, they've just, they've got to know the right answers to these questions, these basic questions of faith. I see apologetics as the outward expression of that theology. So it's theology lived, it's theology in practice. So it, it is kind of answer that question. How, what benefit is it if they have all this rich theology and it's not able to be used? So how would you, if, if you were gonna say, okay, the goal is then that they can use their theology. Well, somewhere around 14 or 15 years old, you would just ask one question. I know that you believe this because the Bible says it. I know this because the Bible says it, this because the Bible says it. Why do you even believe the Bible is true? And that would be the first step in them figuring out how to take my theology and use it in the world. So I'm a huge believer in that practice of, and really you could call it really whatever you want. You could call it talking about theology. Uh, I just have found that the idea of apologetics, asking questions, answering in a winsome way. And let me say, people define apologetics differently, but I see it as um, making sure first and foremost, we have a biblical defense for our faith. It's biblical. And we we know the next question is going to be asked. We don't believe the Bible. (laughs) So what do you do when you've defended it biblically and never tried it? This is my personal pet peeve. Don't try to defend your faith without the Bible. It's always going to come back to what's the source of this? Why do you believe this? And so when you skirt the Bible in doing that, you're, you're only weakening 
we, we need to continue to say, we get this from the Bible. Now, here's what we can also say. Science backs it up. The social science data backs this up as a very reasonable approach. History tells us we should follow this. Historians, thinkers, philosophers have agreed on this for thousands of years. That's all we're doing is we're just trying to continue the conversation by showing them that there are these other disciplines that... It's uh, not unreasonable That's right. to believe that the Bible is true because you're not standing alone against everybody else in the culture. Right. And that's, you know, and by someone saying, okay, I agree, it's reasonable, you still haven't removed the offense of the gospel. Right. So it's not like, you know, that's the aim. Some people take apologetics too seriously and that, like the end game, they were going to argue them in. It is a conversation tool. I just personally have found like, e even if they can't really winsomely defend their positions, the point is our kids are winsomely defending their positions yeah. so they can do it as they get out there. Okay, two questions to wrap up with. Yeah. The first is, it's nice to write a thesis about all of this. So... Have you got a model you can point us to and say, here's somebody, here are people. People have grabbed onto this. They're doing it, and it's revolutionizing homes or youth ministries. I know some churches are trying. Right. Um, I think the, the the churches tend to lag a little behind the data. So I, I do think we're, we'll see more of it in the next five or ten years. Um, if, you see, if, if you see youth ministry done, the same way it was 20 and 25 years ago, then uh, you can basically deem it ineffective. Uh, there's been no change. And that's, and truthfully, we just see that a lot. You just walk in, you'll be like, wow, this is exactly what I did when I was in youth group. That, there's a lot of that, you know, going on. Um, so I, I do think a few churches are trying, and if, if they are trying it, here's what they're trying. We're actually going to start defining with objectives, head, heart, and hands, holistic development, holistic discipleship, zero to 18. And they're going to be benchmarks. Now, I have not seen that much. A couple of resources that, that have come along the way, a, a resource called Legacy Milestones. Yeah. Um, where uh, Brian Haynes yeah. Yeah, uh, has sort of tried to put that forth as a model that can be adopted. The, the main issue that churches are facing is most, of, uh, most churches kind of in our, uh, in our orbit are still trying to define whether or not they're a pure church um, with our primary emphasis of discipling the kids who grow up here, mm -hmm. or are we hiring a youth pastor to go get the community kids to bring them here? And that's why I think youth pastors burn out and don't last very long because we've asked them to do the impossible. So, I mean, think about that for one, we, we, in the initial meeting with any youth pastor, we basically tell them, here's what we want from you. This kid right here who wants to grow in Christ, their ninth grader, they're, they're, they've really been growing. You know, we want them to want to come and want to, want to be here. This kid right here, like, yeah, yeah, come, take it or leave it. We want him to come. We want him to love it. You know, oh, this kid right here hadn't been in six years, you know, and like, we just love him. Yeah. We just, and we want him to come too. Build a program that every one of those three kids is going to go, I love this. And my suggestion is they do build a program that reaches none of them. Yeah. And, and I would say, why don't we just declare and I would say for the church, we need to declare at this moment in time, I, it's not, not a dog, somebody who's trying to be attractional, reach, reach kids, but why don't we just declare our primary function, Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 6, Deuteronomy 6, these kids who belong to our flock need to be trained up here. And let's equip them to reach their friends. You know, that's, so if you do that, this is where the, the model kind of has its challenges, is 
now you've got these six kids who are growing together in each grade and they're hitting these objectives. A couple of newcomers come in. Well, they weren't there for year three and four. So what do we do now? You know, and then you got the outside and this, these kids are getting it at home and their parents are reinforcing the catechism and they're just crushing it in the children's ministry. And then family just comes to Christ. They're brand new and they're visiting the church. So and our churches have tended to be paralyzed by that. The worst thing we could do is rub the new family the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So let's do the pizza and dodgeball. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so the, the, the kids that want to grow are not very developed. So innovative youth pastors right now are, are thinking of programmatically, how do we bo- do both? Can we just declare this night is equipping night? And we're, is, you're not going to like it if you're not a Christian. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're going to have objectives and measurables, and it's going to be fun. And, but we're going to defend our faith. We're going to stretch you. We're going to, whatever level that you can go to academically in high school, we're going to stretch you to that spiritually. So if you can do pre-calc and calc, by the time you're done with us, you're going to do spiritual pre-calc and calc just to match that. Cause then we know that's your capacity. And then I would say the, the, the last thing outside the church, I see this a lot. And I've, I've been kind of bragging on this, this group that we do speech and debate with STOA. Um, it's a, it's a homeschool speech and de- debate group, but they have capitalized on, uh, basically the idea of, uh, competitive apologetics. And so they give you 84 questions. All the students have 84 questions that they need to on their own research, a six minute winsome response. And then they show up to tournaments. They kind of draw out of a hat and they have to practice getting up. And I just think to me, what a brilliant idea. Oh, just a way to, to you're doing the, you're basically doing theology, catechism in practice in a competition environment, in a competition environment with like-minded families and like-minded friends where you can screw up right. uh, and you can be encouraged. And they're doing this at 14, 15, 16. And, you know, if, if I had my way, I'd want to like implement that into every church. You, you know. just got back from a competition. Yeah. How'd your kids do? Uh, just my oldest went on this one um, and she did, she did pretty well. It, it's a, it's a subjective yep. type of thing. Yeah. And you're, you're, you know, the judges, you know, you could have three judges and one of them thought that was really winsome yeah. and the other one thought that was the least winsome in the room. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, all right. Uh, one thought maybe use too much scripture because remember this is geared toward the lost. So if you do all scripture examples, yeah, you can't really build a bridge. The other one's going to say you needed more scripture. <laughs> Don't forget that's your source, you know? So it's, it's just so fun. And we always tell our kids like they all want to win. Right. But that's not why we're here. Right. We're here to practice and encourage. So churches and, and I'm hearing three, three groups, youth pastors, but I'm also hearing dads and moms. Here's what you need to be doing. You need to be modeling what a missional disciple making, your kids need to see you doing it and they need to be invited into that. Absolutely. If you want them to grow, to become that. And then guys who are either not there yet or outside of that, you can still get engaged in the life of a kid and have an impact in an amazing way. Absolutely. And yeah, what mean, what, what better, you know, next generation ministry. So dad's kind of driving a stake in the ground and going, okay, I see this. I'm influential. Right. I'm not just going to do scripture memory and family devotions. We've got to do that consistent time with God, but we're going to do mission as a family, like model it for them. And then we're also going to serve as spiritual aunts and uncles inside the church to supplement what's happening in the home. And we're going to be training them and we're going to do measurables. I mean, that how much better does it get than that? So here's the capstone on all of this. It sounds like 
if you do this, it's like if you follow this recipe, I can guarantee you. <laughs> and we know it's all dependent on the Spirit of God in the life of the kid, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, and then that's the, to me, I always think about it this way is n- none of it guarantees that kids are going to be saved. Uh, they can actually answer every apologetics question and not have a regenerate heart. Right. We know that to be true. This is what I always, I compare it to this, is we've all hit a point in our life, whether we're at 20 or 60, where we are floating downstream and we realize we're lost. Mm-hmm. We're, it's shaky. And then someone throws us a, a life buoy. My question is, when we grab onto it, is it tethered onto anything? And I think, so our kids are going to reach out for that at 20, 30, 50. What we're doing now, zero to 18, is we're tying the knots around the tree. That's it. And they're going to have to have their own journey. They got to hang on by themselves. They got to recognize their own desperation at some point and turn. and, And when they reach out for that salvation, I'm saying our job is we're tethering it to the tree so that when they cling on to that, they're clinging on to something. And we haven't said, well, go off and find your way. You know, you'll just find your way. And I think they do find their way and they, they reach out, save me, save me from this. And it's, it's not tethered to anything. Yeah. I was listening to Tommy Nelson. Oh, yeah. A ton. I said my, my generation's kind of MacArthur almost. And, and they were, Den Bible Church was one of the first to come out with, you know, their media ministry or whatever. But it did make me think, you know, what do we need to grow biblically? You know, well, we need the word of God and the spirit of God. And so what we're talking about here is the joy that God gives us to grow together in discipling relationships. So Paul says, first uh, Thessalonians, you know, we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It, it becomes this model. We see Jesus with the disciples, you know, like that, there's a joy and a beauty to that. But if that's not there, do you have the word of God and the spirit of God? Right. You can, you can grow. Well, and here's, here's the thing that I would tag on to all of this as well. And since Ben just got here, we'll wrap up here as we uh, as we pray. Um, but I wonder, even as we're talking about this, because my spiritual formation was so much books and tapes and listening to preaching, if that leaned heavily into intellectual formation, but not relational formation, which is not a fully formed formation, which can leave you pharisaical and proud and arrogant and I think that was I I think I drifted into all of that self-righteousness and I know the answers and I know I can articulate it better than you can rather than it being a relational connectedness that comes when you're one-on-one with somebody in a disciple making situation where it's life on life and not just information transfer so as much as I look back and and thank God I had all those cassettes I would say I, I was if it, I'd put it in these terms, I would say my uh, my upper body strength was great and my legs weren't getting any workout, if, if that makes sense. But my, my relational side was not getting any workout. It was just my brain. And if you got a big brain on a small body, that's ugly. That's how that works out. Yeah, I need a leg day. <laughs> any other questions? Anything? And, and we're just, we just made a big small group because of the small size here tonight. But I... I I love this conversation. I, I love the topic, and I think it's vital. And I'm so grateful for Danny's investment in this and his study of this. And I think he's he's unpacking some stuff that really needs to be thought about carefully and and needs to be a part of how we're thinking about how we 
pass on faith to the next generation. So anything else anybody wants to say, question to you. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, thanks for this time together. Thanks for Danny and for the work you've done in his life and through him and the study. And Lord, this is so important because we care about uh, the ministry of your word in the lives of young people. We care about the next generation, not only in our church, but the next generation in our world. And we want to not just wring our hands and talk about it. We want to figure out what we can do to uh, to invest. So um, help us with that, Lord. Give us wisdom, strategy. Help us know how we can do it uh, formally through student ministries, but how we can do it informally in our one-on-one relationships and how we can uh, strategically think about uh, having the right people alongside our young people starting early and helping them grow in grace and see it modeled and start doing ministry earlier. Um, I I pray that you would, that this conversation would be a spark for uh, that to grow and to continue in our midst. And I pray your blessing on Downline and what Danny's doing and uh, for the, for tomorrow morning, pray there'd be people there tomorrow morning. And I'd pray for uh, next year that there'd be a great class of uh, folks signed up for next year and we ask it in your name amen well a fascinating conversation with dr danny hinton who gives leadership to downline ministries in little rock arkansas again there's a link to downline in our show notes and i think this is an important conversation for us to continue to have in fact i hope if you listened to today's episode and you know someone who is a youth pastor in student ministries either listen to this episode again together with them or send the link on to them and encourage them to listen. I think this will spur on our thinking about how we can be more effectively engaging with young people in our church in a way that sets them up for lifelong discipleship and lifelong disciple making. And that's that's what our heart is, right? We want to see people thriving and making disciples, following the commandments of Jesus in the Great Commission. That's what's at the heart of the the Great Commission Collective. If you haven't found out about GCC, about our values and about our culture, what we're all about, let me encourage you to go to our website, gccollective.org, find out where we're planting churches and find out how we're helping to strengthen the pastors and the leaders who are planting those churches. Again, find out more about the Great Commission Collective at gccollective.org. And if you liked today's episode, I hope you'll go back and listen to any Bounce podcasts that you've missed. I hope you'll leave us a review. That's always helpful. Leave us a like on whatever platform you're listening to this particular podcast. And we need to let you know this is our last podcast of the spring season. Spring is is long gone now, and we're going to take a little hiatus before we start back up in the fall. So you enjoy a summer break while we enjoy a little bit of a summer break. And we will be back in early September with a whole new season of The Bounce.